History's given us some mighty empires, but the greatest was not that of Persia, Greece, Rome, or Spain. The world's greatest land empire was that of the Mongols under Genghis Khan and successors. The Mongol Empire unified an area the size of the whole of Africa, and in doing so linked Islamic civilization of the Middle East with that of China and eventually India and Europe as well. While the Mongols have usually been depicted as barbarous savages, Dr. Jack Weatherford, DeWitt Wallace Professor of Anthropology at McAllister College in Minnesota, has pointed out the benefits this empire bestowed to posterity. And the list is not a short one. In Genghis Khan and the Makings of the Modern World, Dr. Weatherford produced a bestseller about the remarkable Mongol Empire and its founder. Said Kirkus Reviews, Weatherford's lively analysis restores the Mongols' reputation and it takes wonderful learned detours. We're happy to have him join us from Minnesota. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Jack Weatherford. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, I want, I want to start out noting that among the many remarkable things in your book, the one that struck me, I think, the most was that the ancient writings about the Mongols, writings that were called the secret history of the Mongols, were in fact not lost to history, as was long assumed, and they've actually been translated. Yes, uh, they didn't show up again until the, the middle of the 1800s, so they were lost for quite a long time. And then it took more than 100 years to decipher them because they were in a coded form. It was really difficult. And then starting in the 1980s, they began being translated in various languages. We actually have three versions in English today, uh, which is very good. One translated and published by Harvard University, one through an outstanding professor in Australia, and the third one from a Mongolian professor, himself a Mongolian who uh, works in England. So we're very fortunate to have three versions now in English. And another surprising sidelight, and I first heard about this 20 years ago when I was in Nepal, and I thought the guy was crazy, but he told me that Nazis were very interested in, in some of the secret history of the, of the Mongols and that they tried to translate it, and, and I guess evidently not only did they, some say it may have influenced their use of the Blitzkrieg style of attack. The Mongols certainly served as a model for the attack on Russia because the, the Mongols are the only people who've ever conquered Russia. And the, the Nazis, as well as others, have been quite aware of that and have studied those writings. Now, I cannot exactly say 100% that the Mongols were the, were the model for it. I do believe it. And in fact, the, the word lightning strike was used at the time in the Middle Ages to refer to how the Mongols struck. But I haven't been able to exactly document the last tiny detail that the, the Germans actually took that term from the Mongols. Yeah. I kind of believe they did in part because the German military academy was actually founded on the spot where the Mongols had defeated the German knights. Huh. So the Germans were very, very well aware of uh, what, uh, what the Mongols had done. Interesting. I want to just state once and for all, it really is Genghis Khan. The name is universally seems mispronounced as Genghis Khan. Yes, you know, I'm so accustomed to Genghis Khan that I, I hear it, I don't even notice it anymore. <laughs> actually, in Mongolian, it it's really should be even C-H, Genghis. But Genghis uh, 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 with this kind of just sound is just close enough. And sometimes I say Chinggis, sometimes Genghis. And occasionally I, even I say Genghis just because it's so American. 
Well, I had the pleasure of visiting the National Museum in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia uh, in 1991. I was quite amazed at this vast map they had of Mongol conquests. Uh, you note in the book that Genghis himself took an area four times the size of the Roman Empire in just two decades, and at its height there was, um, well, and still is, nothing that can compare to it. That's absolutely true. I mean, people think about uh, Alexander the Great as a great conqueror. He certainly was. Um, Napoleon. Uh, but none of them can compare with what Genghis Khan did. You see, the whole Roman Empire and all the centuries it was there never came close to achieving what Genghis Khan achieved in his life. And he set in motion such a powerful machine that it continued on for two more generations, getting larger and larger. If you think about the United States, where we've labeled axis of evil, for example, or the, the great terror nations, uh, Genghis Khan basically conquered all of them, uh, certainly uh, North Korea, uh, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. Iraq came after Genghis Khan's death, but his grandson conquered it. They took all of that, as well as the, the whole of Russia, China. Uh, the scale is absolutely unimaginable in the sense that no one before, no one uh, today even has any dream of ever conquering something like China and Russia both. And what's so interesting about it at the end of all of this is he started out his whole nation the Mongol nation was about one million people, and his army was approximately 100,000, somewhere between 90 and 110,000. Now, if you think about that, Walmart today has nearly two million employees. So it's just a little over half the size of the workforce of Walmart. That's his whole nation. The uh, army of Genghis Khan could actually fit in some of the modern stadiums that exist around the world today. Tiny force. And what they did was absolutely unprecedented. Well, let's let's talk about the man that started started this all off. He had an amazingly humble beginning. Uh, can you give us a brief history of Temujin? Uh, it was at one point actually murdered his brother to head his own family. Yes, I think it, it was actually a very horrible existence. His family was quite poor, even by the standards of steppe tribes. And his mother had been kidnapped by his father because his father didn't even have the money to go out and arrange a marriage by uh, doing dowry service for the wife or doing bride service for her. And so consequently, Temujin grew up in, a, in a quite an odd family. But by the time he was nine, his own father had been killed. And then the tribe of his father could not support the, the two widows that his father left behind and the seven children that he left behind. And they put them out on the step to die. So he was left out there with his mother, and in the words of the secret history, his mother pulled her hat down on her head, tied up her skirt, and took a black stick and ran up and down the banks of the river, digging up roots to feed the gullet of her brood. And somehow she brought them through. Later he was kidnapped, put into slavery, we might say. Yeah. It's a little bit hard to explain it in today's terms, but he's made into a slave. He escaped from that, and yes, he did kill his own brother. It was a terrible life that he came from terrible. Well, he, he has some success uh, becoming the head of one tribe, and of course at this time the Mongol tribes are all warring with each other. And we should mention too, the, the Tatars was the name of another nearby tribe. People sometimes use, use this to describe the Mongols. The terms sometimes overlap. Yes, eventually the Mongols became called either uh, Tatars or Tartars. The, the Europeans added the R in it because it sounded like uh, the word for the Greek word for hell. And uh, so the Mongols are usually not called Mongols in the ancient literature. Uh, so the nomenclature is very hard to follow, but the history, uh, once you get past all the words, is quite interesting. Genghis Khan did defeat the Tatars, 
uh, he defeated them, and then he pretty much wiped out that tribe and incorporated the remnants into his growing Mongol nation. It took him a long time to conquer the tribes of the steppes. That was a long struggle. Conquering the great civilizations of the world wasn't very hard. <laughs> well, tell us how that happened. He had a small number of people. He's just in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia in Asia, and yet he's the most successful uh, conqueror in history. What, what were the Mongols doing right? Well, I think first was that long period of learning that he had by fighting in these little tiny feuds and skirmishes. And from fighting in one after another, he really learned a lot about human nature, and he certainly learned a lot about warfare. Uh, he learned that you can defeat a people, but that certainly doesn't make them follow you. That as soon as you're away from them, they might turn against you again. So he became very astute at learning which people to kill and which people to let live. It was an important lesson that he later applied. So once he united the tribes on the steppe, after some 20 years or so of fighting, then in 1206 he created the Mongol nation, but he had such a potent force and he had such a great need uh, to supply that force with new goods that he turned his attention towards China. And he began conquering. I think it was really first more as a system of looting, really. They were looking for goods. And then only gradually did he seem to realize that these nations were under his control, and he began to knit them together into an empire and then turned his attention towards the Muslim states of Central Asia. The tales of Mongol conquest are certainly legendarily bloody, but, but you do you note in your book that uh, Genghis and his sons were better behaved than, uh, than some who came later, and that they did, they did focus on the aristocracy of those who they conquered. But uh, you note that they were actually very progressive by a lot of standards, and how they regarded women, uh, limiting torture, freedom of worship, etc., Yes, once we get past the horror of the invasions, and uh, I, I will say on those, though, I think it's important to note that Genghis Khan, if people surrendered and then remained loyal to him, he protected them from everything, from looting, he reduced their taxes, he did everything he could to protect them. If they did not surrender, and if they ever revolted, that was the great sin, if they revolted, they would be killed, just simply wiped out. But once this was done, once the conquest was over, then the laws that he instituted were extremely progressive. Even for today's standards, we have trouble enforcing such concepts as religious freedom. Genghis Khan recognized, for example, that on the steps, tribes mostly fought about the kidnapping of women. That's how his mother had been, uh, she'd been kidnapped, and he had uh, seen the effects of that. His wife had been kidnapped. But he saw that civilized people, that they fought about religion. That seemed to be whose scripture was right, who God was talking to. And so just as he outlawed the kidnapping of women in order to enforce peace on the steppe, he created religious freedom for all people in his empire as a way to create harmony within the civilized places that he conquered. And even today, we still have a lot of trouble enforcing that concept around the world. We're speaking with author Dr. Jack Weatherford about his book, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Another of the many surprises in your book, uh, Dr. Weatherford, there's actually some eyewitness accounts that survive of Genghis himself, I guess from his entry into Bukhara. Uh, yes, that was the, the one time when he actually went into a city. That's the only entrance into a city that we have. And he appeared there. Uh, he went into the great mosque there, and that mosque still exists. It's quite a, a wondrous thing to go there, because so far as we know, that's the only building in his whole life that he ever entered. If he entered any other, it, it's simply not recorded, not in any way. Usually when he conquered a city, he would leave uh, sometime before the city fell. Once it became very obvious to him the city would fall, he would get out the way because he didn't want to be around for the last part. He wanted to go on to the next one. And he just left for 
people to mop up. But uh, this one episode we do have, he is described. There are a few other people who saw him, because late in life he began to attract a lot of sages, a lot of scholars came to his camp. Uh, sometimes he invited them, sometimes they came uninvited. And you know how professors are, they always record what they did. <laughs> and so we have a number of uh, people who did record him late in life, but not too much about his physical appearance, unfortunately. We don't know a lot, just a, a few little details here and there. Well, there is at least one very famous instance in history of a failure to conquer by the Mongols. That was Japan. What, what saved Japan from conquest? Yes, now this is already two generations later when we get to Kublai Khan. Yeah. Who's a much different character, the grandson of Genghis Khan. And the two are similar in some ways in turning people's mind. They often go together as great conquerors. That Kublai Khan did complete the conquest of southern China, the Song Dynasty in the south, and that is very important. But when he, as soon as he hit the water... And he really hit the water in three great invasions, twice trying to invade Japan and once the island of Java, which is now Indonesia. And he failed in all three. And I think in part uh, he wasn't up to the task personally, but I think the whole Mongol culture, the Mongol approach to warfare simply wasn't adaptable to the sea, that the ship is not just a floating horse. The ship is a whole different thing. And the Mongols, especially under Kublai Khan, had trouble recognizing that. And then once Kublai Khan failed for the second time in Japan, uh, he never put to sea again. Let's talk a little bit about the, the Mongols are certainly not known for the culture that they had, but they encouraged the cultures which, over which they ruled, and they flourished. Can you review a little bit maybe how China, India, and Persia in some cases had golden ages after they were invaded? Yes, if you think about Mongol culture, uh, it was very simple. They didn't have their own written language. They had no commitment to a scripture, uh, to a particular religion. Uh, they were so simple in many ways that they were then open to almost everything. And they recognized there were many wondrous things there in uh, China, certainly in Persia, and even a little bit in Europe they saw, especially metallurgy out of Europe. But they were able to take bits and pieces and combine them in ways that no one else had been able to do. Because up to that point, every great civilization really had been a regional civilization for one area. So you had European civilization, Muslim civilization, Indian. So, but with the Mongols, they combined bits and pieces of everything. Well, one example that you can take that's, in some people's mind, a negative one, but they were able to take gunpowder out of China, they were able to take the European ability to cast metal, and particularly the Europeans were able to make these huge bells that they hung in their churches. And then they were able to take the, the principles behind uh, naphtha use in Byzantium and the Middle East, and they put all that together in a new way, and what you ended up really was with the cannon. You turn that bell on its side, you uh, reconfigure it slightly, you use gunpowder instead of naphtha, you end up with a totally new thing. And this was the genius of the Mongols, that ability to combine bits and pieces of different cultures into totally new things. And you talk a lot in your book about uh, the, 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 the happy effect the Mongol Empire had on, on really the entire world at that time. I thought I would just quote a couple um, sentences from the Wikipedia article about your, about your, your book. Uh, noted that since the Mongols were horsemen of the steppes, they didn't have any industrial output of their own. They were dependent on taxes from their subjugated peoples. To increase that wealth, instead of increasing the tax burden on the masses, the Mongols encouraged their subjects to be more productive and enterprising. 
They did this by sponsoring lucrative global trade, encouraging scientific advances, improved agriculture, and production methods. Many innovations came from mixing technologies from different cultures within their global empire. I certainly agree with that. Now, I can't remember exactly if I wrote that or somebody just posted <laughs> that, something that summarized it. But anyway, that is the kind of thing that I, I do write about, yes, those themes. Uh, it creates this renaissance, and in fact, I do believe that the renaissance in Europe was derived from the Mongol era. Of course, the word renaissance means a rebirth, and they mostly look back to Greek and Roman times, and somehow there's a sort of myth that something from the Greek and Roman times was being reborn. But if you look at the basis of the renaissance, it was the introduction of such things as the compass, gunpowder, the printing press. Uh, these are the important items that the Mongols were spreading around the world. The Mongols didn't invent any of those things, but the Mongols took them everywhere. And so in many regards, I think that we can say that the Renaissance in Europe was just a kind of footnote to the great Mongol Empire. You look at the, the wonderful uh, new glazing techniques that were brought from Persia into China and what that did for Chinese art. You look at the movement of glass production to China. Already silk production had left China and was in other places. But you look at the transfer of the technology that went with it under the Mongols, and it was astronomical compared to anything that came before. There really was a global society. In fact, when the, the son of Genghis Khan, Gude Han, died, uh, Gude Han's death, the word reached all the way from Mongolia to Hungary in six weeks. Wow. In six weeks. It's just incredible what the Mongols had created. Well, some things we, we talk about the Renaissance, and of course a lot of that has to do with Gutenberg uh, printing. And of course some might say that that did come from China perhaps before that, but you wouldn't have anything to print on if Chinese paper technology had not gone west to Europe. Yeah, the, the paper technology was another thing that moved. But also, the Mongols were very concerned about the use of movable type. That was very important to them because the Mongols had to have documents printed in so many different languages with so many different alphabets. They could not rely just upon Chinese. In fact, not only did they uh, spread the use of movable type to all these different places, but the Mongols uh, also uh, invented a universal alphabet in order to write all the languages. They recognized that no one alphabet of that time was really capable of writing all languages. So the things that the Mongols did, even today, we don't have a universal alphabet for all languages of the world. The Mongols were one of the few to ever try it. They tried to create a universal paper currency system. Again, it failed. It certainly worked in some areas, but it's a universal system. It failed. And we still, to this day, do not have a universal paper currency system. So uh, the efforts of the Mongols are things that even today we are still trying to grasp, understand, and trying to do. We haven't been able to overcome their failures in these areas. Well, your book is certainly uh, requiring people to take a second look back at this uh, amazing empire. Um, I, I was amazed when I went to Mongolia. It was 1991. It was at the very end of the Soviet era. And they were just basically, the Soviets tried to stamp out Mongol culture for so long, including some terrible massacres at monasteries and such. Um, how, is, how has modern Mongolia fared uh, I I since the fall of communism? Mongolia has made a very unusual transition. Uh, it's a wonderful country. You did see it in an extremely important moment. If you were to go back now, you might not recognize it in some ways, and others you would. You know, of all the uh, states to be dominated by the the communists, Mongolia did suffer some of the most. I mean, it's estimated that uh, at least 10% uh, of the people of Mongolia were killed off during this time 
almost every descendant of Genghis Khan was killed. As you mentioned, many lamas and, and nuns were killed in Mongolia. The suffering of Mongolia was horrendous. Yet, oddly enough, when communism fell, of all the countries in which it fell, only Mongolia kept the party in place because they, they did not vote them out even with democracy coming in. Hmm. So uh, there was this very unusual combination of Mongolians trying to struggle with democracy, the modern world, the capitalist world, and maintain the best out of the past. And they've maintained very close relationships with North Korea, with Cuba, with Vietnam. They have expanded that, though, to try to have very close relations with the United States. So Mongolia today actually has troops with the United States in Iraq, but at the same time, they have troops with every uh, United Nations peacekeeping mission that they can. They have people guarding the the genocide trials in uh, Sierra Leone. They have people in uh, the Balkans. They have people all over the world. And so Mongolia, at the same time, they're trying to help the United States, help the United Nations, and still maintain very close ties to uh, North Korea, Vietnam, and its traditional allies, as well as to Russia and China. It's an unusual country, very unusual. Yes, I certainly enjoyed it, and I'd like to go back one day soon. Dr. Weatherford, it's not really maybe correct to ask this question, but what led to the end of the, Mo of the Mongol Empire, which I guess was sort of a piecemeal affair? We're going to look at it two ways. I'll give you the answer most scholars give, and that is that because the Mongols didn't have a good system of succession, then the heirs began to fight over it, and it fell apart into the different uh, subdivisions, and then it fractured more and more and more. And that is certainly true. But I think that it's just uh, like a diamond. You, If it's not struck, even if it has a fault, it probably won't split apart. There has to be something that hits it. And the thing that hit the Mongol Empire was its own success in one way, that so often in our own lives, whatever makes us powerful also becomes our weakness. With the Mongols, all this communication that we talk about, this ability to move messages so fast, it also became the conduit for the transmission of the plague. The plague, which probably originated somewhere in southern China, then zipped back and forth across the Mongol Empire. It took a long time for the plague to do that because the fleas that carry the plague, uh, they don't like horses. They tend to stay away, so that slowed it down. But nevertheless, the carts that were being pulled and the other things that were being transmitted, they eventually took the plague. It struck the empire, and then it fractured along these lines, and it closed down after about a century and a half. We've been speaking with Dr. Jack Weatherford, the author of Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. I do hope, uh, Dr. Weatherford, that a lot of our listeners will get this book. It's a, just one. It's a very, very entertaining and informative read. Well, I thank you very much, and now I'm working on The Daughters of Genghis Khan. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so about two years, that'll be out. All right. Final caveat for our listeners. Uh, you know, you should probably read the book and not watch the Howard Hughes version of history wherein <laughs> John Wayne played Genghis Khan. It's a famously bad movie, The Conqueror. I agree with that completely. <laughs> Terrible movie. Well, Dr. Weatherford, thank you very much for speaking with us. Oh, Doc, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. <laughs> <laughs> 